You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is Premium Episode 6, FBI vs. PTK Part 2, Dr. Lundy, and the Atlanta Child Murders. Today I'm recording from the Atascadero State Hospital. So, Agent John E. Douglas wrote in the book Mindhunter, inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit. He wrote that he was doing an interview with a reporter once when she said, I can't even think about this kind of thing, in reference to serial killers. And as he reports it, Agent Douglas smoothly replied, Well, we'd better all think about this if we ever want to have fewer of them to think about. The implication here being that we should spend our time thinking about serial killers if we want to keep them from happening. However, there's really no practical advice for individuals or institutions for preventing serial killers. And realistically, how could the average person intervene anyway in like an Ed Kemper situation? I mean, honestly, like, if you knew someone might become a serial killer, literally, what could you possibly do to stop that? And other than, you know, locking your doors or something, what could you possibly do to prevent being targeted by a serial killer? Like, honestly. Even if we agree with Agent Douglas's explanation of serial killers, most people are never made aware of the bizarrely rich, yet sick inner lives of serial killers until well after they're caught. No, the point of thinking about serial killers, the way Mindhunter portrays them, is to instill an ambient level of fear in the populace. They even depict this in the Mindhunter TV show, with every main character at various points becoming completely unnerved or unhinged at relatively normal things. This is not unlike the psychological warfare advocated by Colonel Michael Aquino, or the broader psychological operations work, or the strategy of tension, or Operation Gladio, or other collective traumas that serve to keep the population docile. Like, honestly, like, I'm doing this show, and I'm talking about serial killers, but, like, I'm under no illusion that my show is going to, like, prevent any crimes, right? It's just asinine. Now, I'm not a huge fan of word frequency analysis per se, although I think it makes sense to look at various words and terms in Agent Douglas's Mindhunter book. Agent Douglas uses the term satanic just two times, once in describing Charles Manson, which like, fair, and the other time he uses the word satanic in reference to people telling him that they sometimes find Barbie dolls with stick pins outside of psychiatric hospitals. The quote actually says, Occasionally you get this kind of thing with satanic cults, voodoo, or people who think they're into witchcraft, but there was none of that. Now this is a very interesting passage because he acknowledges that satanic cults and voodoo exists, but then he ends the sentence minimizing it with people who think they're into witchcraft, which like, whether you believe in witchcraft or not, like, I don't think you think you're into witchcraft, like, you're either into it or you're not, you know? And then Agent Douglas says, there was none of that in this instance, which, like, far be it from me to be, like, the voodoo understander, but, like, 
that's literally voodoo. Whether or not you think that voodoo is real, like doing stick pins into Barbie dolls outside of psychiatric hospitals is categorically doing voodoo. And apparently he gets, you know, reports of it frequently enough to mention that it happens more than once. And as we will see, there seems to be quite a number of criminal satanic cults. Yet Agent Douglas does not spend any time discussing satanic cults, even admitting that they exist. Now, the word cult appears just three times in Mindhunter. One in relation to Charles Manson, which, again, fair. You know, we mentioned that before. The word cult appears just three times. One is in relation to Charles Manson. One we mentioned up above, satanic cults. And another use of the word cult is just in passing, not referring to anything. There is no mention of serial killers being in cults, which has happened several times. And you would think that it would be notable to mention any time a serial killer and a cult overlap, right? That would certainly merit some discussion, unless there's specifically something they do not want to talk about. Agent Douglas mentions organized crime just twice, once in referring to federal RICO conspiracy statutes, that's the law of racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations. It was a law designed to fight the mafia, right? The other is a throwaway line about investigative procedures in general. There's no discussion of serial killers' ties to organized crime, which, again, has been documented several times. And yet again, as with cults, that would be a particularly notable thing to talk about. It would merit some discussion, right? No. None of that. And, and it's not in Sexual Homicide, the more scholarly and academic book, in case you're wondering. Agent Douglas uses the word conspiracy just seven times, basically never in relation to serial killers, generally just in passing about other topics. There is no appearance of the phrase MKUltra or any related terms. The word brainwashing appears just once, Referring to his own FBI training, he tells some stupid story about being so trained to avoid Soviet honey traps that he would often accidentally avoid attractive women looking to hook up with him, which is also just a stupid story to relay. Agent Douglas uses the term mind control just once, again in relation to Charles Manson, which, fair, but he seems to entirely endorse the Vincent Bugliosi helter-skelter narrative, which I would say is leaking like a sieve by now. Check out the book Chaos by Tom O'Neill if you want an easy summary of that topic. And there are other books that go even deeper on the Charles Manson question. Now, very tellingly, Agent Douglas makes no mention whatsoever of Dr. Donald Lundy or any of the other predecessors. Dr. Donald Lundy was one of several celebrity psychiatrists who basically did Agent Douglas's job before the FBI came around with their behavioral science unit and pretended like they invented the field, right? Other than vanity, there just might be a few more reasons for ignoring Dr. Lundy. Let's get into the history real quick. 
Now, we mentioned him in the last FBI versus PTK episode, but Dr. Donald Lundy was a former Navy man and a professor of psychiatry at Stanford. Dr. Lundy probably treated and or interacted and or programmed Ed Kemper since he was at the Atascadero State Hospital at the same time that Ed Kemper was. At a minimum, you would think that would be notable, that one of the expert witnesses on Kemper's trial knew him before his killing spree, right? Like, you'd think anyone would make note of that, that there were a bunch of people that knew Ed Kemper before he went on his killing spree, who had psychiatric training, right? Dr. Lundy also testified at the trials of John Lindley Frazier and Herb Mullen. You know, we talked about some of this in the prior episode. Mullen being the dueling serial killer along with Kemper, right? Now, in all three of these cases, even when he was called as a defense witness, Dr. Lundy vigorously made biased statements and possibly committed perjury in torpedoing their cases. Dr. Lundy was also involved in the Hollywood Strangler case, and his role in that case was very curious because he testified that Bianchi, the purported Hollywood Strangler, could not possibly have MPD, multiple personality disorder. And mind you, he wasn't testifying that multiple personality disorder didn't exist, just that he didn't have it, which is very interesting because, of course, MPD, now known as DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, is precisely the thing that was probably weaponized to create killers, right? We went into this a little bit last episode. So in 1975, Dr. Lundy was called in to be one of three psychiatrists who examined Patty Hearst in relation to her trial. As a reminder for people, Patty Hearst was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army, which was that counterinsurgency fake leftist terrorist group, right? And they kidnapped and brainwashed her, and she even committed a bank robbery with them, I believe, and some other crimes. Dr. Lundy came and testified that Patty Hearst did not have any strong convictions, which, while Patty Hearst was still sentenced, this testimony was a helpful stepping stone towards her eventual sentence commutation, right? Then Dr. Lundy was pulled into the Dan White trial. Dan White was the guy who shot the San Francisco Mayor Moscone, as well as the politician Harvey Milk. Dan White used the famous Twinkie defense, which was his argument that he was eating so much junk food that his mind was warped, and he just, you know, went and killed two high-profile politicians, you know, as you do. Lord knows that if junk food caused you to commit murder, I probably would have done it by now. Obviously, it's absurd on the face of it, but... But, mind you, Dan White was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter rather than first-degree murder. Partially due to the Twinkie defense. I think he served, like, several years in prison, but, I mean, nowhere near <laughs> the amount of time that the crimes would have merited, right? It was a whole outrage that the gay community, you know, 
rioted over, basically, in a very curious case. Dr. Lundy was pulled in to the Jonestown investigation. Specifically, he investigated Larry Layton, which Larry Layton was the only person ever prosecuted for anything relating to Jonestown. He was convicted, basically, of killing Congressman Leo Ryan. Dr. Lundy was also pulled into the investigation into Howard Hughes's sanity, which is such a complicated question that, like, I'm not even going to get into it right now. But if you'll notice, there's a pattern of extremely high-profile cases, right? We'll get to that in a second. Finally, Dr. Lundy was called in as an expert witness for the Girl in the Box case, which is an extremely disturbing case. I'll quote from Program to Kill. The Girl in the Box case was where a woman, Colleen Stan, was kidnapped in Northern California and held as a sex slave for seven years by a man named Cameron Hooker. During that time, Colleen Stan was frequently tortured and forced to live for months at a time in a box roughly the size of a coffin. At other times, she was forced to wear what was called a head box, which was a crudely made but very effective sensory deprivation device. When the, court, when the case came to court, there was no question that the woman had been held in abhorrent conditions. Hooker had gone to the trouble of documenting his depravities on film, so there was no shortage of evidence. His home yielded the notorious box along with an array of restraints and torture devices, and some literature suggesting that a ring existed that traded in sex slaves. There is no question that she, Colleen, had the opportunity to physically escape her tormentor. In fact, in the latter years of her captivity, she was allowed to work outside of her captor's home, and she never attempted to escape. Even when she did eventually break free of her psychic bonds, she did not bother to report her ordeal to the police or to her family. She did not bother to report her ordeal to anyone. But she did make numerous phone calls to her former captor. To explain all of that, the prosecutors brought in a psychiatric witness who argued that the woman's period of imprisonment was not consensual despite outward appearances because Colleen Stan had been deprived of her ability to act of her own free will. She was, the expert explained to the jury, mind-controlled. To counter that argument, the defense brought its own witness, Dr. Donald Lundy. Dr. Lundy argued that there was no such thing as mind-control, and that the woman's actions demonstrated that she had remained with her captor voluntarily. Dr. Lundy did not fare well on cross-examination. Surprisingly, the jury rejected Dr. Lundy's testimony and the rest of the defense case. They convicted Cameron Hooker. The verdict signaled that all 12 jurors concluded that Colleen Stan was not, in fact, exercising her free will by choosing to remain as a captive sex slave. All 12 jurors, in other words, were convinced by the evidence presented in the courtroom that the victim was mind-controlled. As you might expect, I think there were Law & Order Special Victims Unit and Criminal Minds episodes on this case. This case was also referenced in the movie The Poughkeepsie Tapes. 
and I'm sure a bunch of other stuff. There is the distinct possibility that Dr. Lundy was involved in possibly programming, or at least monitoring, some of these serial killers, like specifically Ed Kemper, right? Maybe also the Hollywood Strangler, to say nothing of, you know, Herb Mullen or, you know, what have you. And what is beyond dispute is that Dr. Lundy was clearly the go-to establishment psychiatrist for high-profile and sensitive cases, like Jonestown, Patty Hearst, Howard Hughes, and so on. It reminds me of Dr. Noguchi, the go-to coroner for any famous and or suspicious deaths that took place in Los Angeles. Whenever the autopsy needed to reflect certain things, right? Also kind of reminds me of certain lawyers who pop up in every high-profile case. Finally, Dr. Lundy clearly acted prejudiciously in certain cases. He would torpedo certain defenses, like for Kemper, Mullen, and Frazier, and then he very curiously argued that mind control did not exist with the girl-in-the-box case, and adjacent to that, sort of, there was always such an interesting song and dance with Patty Hearst, because they wanted to let her off but you kind of have to admit that mind control plays a role. But then there's also the flip side that she was kind of flirting with that with far left causes before she was mind controlled. So it's such a complicated question with Patty Hearst. But anyway, long story short, Dr. Donald Lundy glows brightly and Agent Douglas makes no mention of him even though he's pretty crucial for a lot of serial killer history, including the very serial killers that he refers to the most. It's sin by omission, but, you know, why, right? It's probably not just his ego.
Now, I would like to talk about the Atlanta child murders, and to a lesser extent, Wayne Williams. The next episode will be about Wayne Williams. Don't jump the gun on me. We are not going to address Wayne Williams fully in this episode. That will come next episode. But the plan is to first go through the story according to Mindhunter, and then we will go through the story with the assistance of Program to Kill and some other sources. Let's get into it. Speaking generally, the Atlanta child murders probably started in 1979, where a disproportionately high number of black children were being killed in mysterious, yet different circumstances. For the most part, they were being strangled or asphyxiated. And we're talking like something like at least 30 children over a two-year period. Although the period of time and the number of children is under dispute. In a dynamic that I've read about in Mexico, sadly, enough mothers were able to petition hard enough to make these cases into a political issue, thereby causing the state police and FBI to get involved. After a certain point, even the White House was pressuring them to solve these cases. And I want to maybe do a content warning and also, well, I want to do a content warning on, like, child murder here. Like, some of this stuff gets pretty strong and rough, so heads up for this episode. Also, I want to uh, be respectful to the dead. I think that there are hints of certain things, but I'm not trying to speak ill of any of the victims. And, you know, I'm only dwelling on this because I think that the cases were not solved, but I'm trying to be nothing but respectful here. Like, we'll get into it. So, when the Atlanta FBI field office got involved in the case, they tapped Agent Douglas to come in, and he came acting in capacity of the Behavioral Science Unit. Agent Douglas writes about it all over Mindhunter, and it has its own chapter. It's hard to judge his actual actions and impact, but at the time, his actions and contributions were controversial, which is a nice way of saying that, at a minimum, he probably didn't help at all, and there's the potential that he actually... <laughs> Um, made things much worse. Let's get into it. Now, this investigation was a very complicated mess because, yes, you could point out, and you would be right, that the Atlanta Police Department and the state police did not investigate these child murders with due diligence and that some of that is probably due to the systematic racism that exists, right? But on the flip side... These killings were all over the map. Whatever was happening, they would have been hard to solve, right? Like, most of the killings were strangulations or asphyxiations, but some were stabbed or killed with blunt force trauma. Some were abducted and some were not. Even more curious, most were not sexually assaulted, but some were. But even when they were not sexually assaulted, there was still believed to be a sexual pattern to the killings. The point being that there was a sudden uptick in the deaths of black children ages 11 to 21, 
of which there was one made one main modus operandi and many many outliers like more than normal like someone was killing all these black kids like no matter how you slice it like that many kids don't just get strangled you know by like the ambient level of violence of like the ghetto right now various people in the community feared that this was the work of the clan which this belief is sometimes ridiculed and it was disparaged by like the fbi the local and state police and they discouraged this viewpoint both to prevent racial tension and because to be fair it didn't quite fit with prior clan patterns of crimes which i agree with that up to a point However, I am much more sympathetic to the mothers and the people in the, in the community looking at the clan for reasons we will cover either in this episode or the next one, I forget. When things heated up, when the mothers, you know, got their way and an investigation started, Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. came to Atlanta to give a benefit concert at the Alni to raise money for the families of the victims. This event received tremendous coverage, and quoting from Agent Douglas here, I was absolutely certain the killer would be there. Now as a reminder here, Frank Sinatra was a rapist with multiple very strong connections to organized crime. Sammy Davis Jr. also had those connections, and, and of course Sammy Davis Jr. was also a Satanist. I'm not inferring anything with their appearance and their benefit concert. I'm just, you know, making the point. As Agent Douglas tells it, he figured out that the killer would probably start dumping bodies in the river once the press had released the fact that they started recovering evidence on the bodies of these poor victims. Take note of this, by the way, Agent Douglas's prediction about the river. So the authorities got onto the trail of Wayne Williams, who might have been caught dropping a body in the Chattahoochee River, though they would not find the body until two days later. Further, the body that they found was an adult man named Nathan Carter. More on this later, too. Either way, the police began intense surveillance of Wayne Williams because they did not have enough evidence for a warrant. Now, I'm going to cover Wayne Williams according to Mindhunter, and then we'll get deeper into his character in the next episode. Agent Douglas says Wayne Williams was trying to break into radio, and he was trying to be a pop music producer and or manager. Now, my words here, some have asserted that this was cover for his predatory impulses, though that would not necessarily be particularly unique for record producers, right? Wayne Williams lived with his parents. It has been asserted that he was a closeted homosexual. Curiously, Agent Douglas does not seem to take a strong stance on this point. Even though, you know, delving into their sexual pathologies is like the entire point of their behavioral science unit, right? They literally wrote a book called Sexual Homicide, but somehow he doesn't seem to need to pinpoint Wayne Williams down on this. And I'm not, you know, making it about being homosexual, I'm just making the point here. So, Mindhunter makes Wayne Williams out to be a loser. I'm not sure that 
his portrayal is very accurate. More on that next episode. So I quote from Mindhunter, Wayne Williams soon became aware of the police following him and led them on wild goose chases through the city. He even drove to Safety Commissioner Lee Brown's home and started honking his horn. He had a dark room in his house, and before a warrant could be obtained, he was observed burning photographs in his backyard. He also washed out the car. Wayne Williams fit our profile in every key respect, including his ownership of a German Shepherd. He was a police buff who had been arrested some years earlier for impersonating a law officer. After that, he had driven a surplus police vehicle and used police scanners to get to crime scenes to take pictures. In retrospect, several witnesses recalled seeing him along the road when the police were reacting to the phone tip and searching for a non-existent body. He had been taking photos there as well, which he offered to the police. We found out that he had indeed attended the benefit concert at the Omni. By the way, my words here, let's revisit that German Shepherd ownership in a minute. After a few weeks, the, pol the local police were able to arrest Wayne Williams for the murder of the 27-year-old Nathan Carter, which is the body that he might have dropped in the river. Much of the case relied on fiber analysis linking Wayne Williams to Nathan Carter and 12 other murders. But he was not charged for 12 other murders. And if you really get into the weeds on the fiber analysis, it's not very strong at all. We'll get into the fiber thing later too. Agent Douglas says, although we felt he was good for at least 12 of the child killings, Wayne Williams was being tried on only two murder counts, Nathaniel Carter and Jimmy Ray Payne. Ironically, both of these young men had been in their 20s, unquote. It's ironic because it doesn't match the unique modus operandi of a prolific child killer. The authorities might have caught an adult murderer, an adult murderer of adults, and pinned child murders onto him. Agent Douglas says of the Wayne Williams trial, If the trial were held today, I would be able to testify as to the modus operandi, signature aspects, and case linkage, as I have in many others. And if there was a conviction, during the penalty phase, I could give a professional opinion on the defendant's dangerousness in the future. But back in 1982, what we did hadn't yet been recognized by the courts, so I could only advise on strategy. This is partially true. The whole criminal minds pseudoscientific field had not been developed yet, or should I say, like, codified into standard industry practice, right? But it's wrong to say that this didn't exist yet. There were already experts who testified to such things, perhaps in a more limited way, like the aforementioned Dr. Lundy, right? What Agent Douglas means is that the courts were not all sufficiently cowed as to just listen to the FBI whenever they spoke on certain matters. That would come later. I quote from Mindhunter again. On February 27th, 1982, after 11 hours of deliberation, the jury returned a guilty verdict on both murders. Wayne B. Williams was sentenced to two consecutive life terms, which he is serving in the Valdosta Correctional Institute in South Georgia. He still maintains his innocence, and the controversy surrounding Williams has never died down or gone away. 
If he does manage to win a new trial, I am confident the result will be the same. Despite what his supporters maintain, I believe the forensic and behavioral evidence points conclusively to Wayne Williams as the killer of 11 young men in Atlanta. Despite what his detractors and accusers maintain, I believe there is no strong evidence linking him to all or even most of the deaths or disappearances of children in that city between 1979 and 1981. Despite what some people would like to believe, young black and white children continued to die mysteriously in Atlanta and other cities. We have an idea who did some of the others. It isn't a single offender and the truth isn't pleasant. So far, though, there's been neither the evidence nor the public will to seek indictments. Program to Kill says of the Atlanta child murders, As the cases of Mark Dutroux and others have amply illustrated, there can be a very fine line between organized pedophilia and serial murder. Perhaps nowhere was that point more clearly made than in what was at the time America's murder capital, Atlanta, Georgia, during the killings commonly referred to as the Atlanta child murders. By this time, it should not come as any great surprise that the Atlanta killings did not follow the pattern suggested by serial killer profiles. First of all, the victims of the child murders were not all children. Six of them were in their 20s. There were many more in that age bracket who should have made the victims list. The list, as the official tally of victims was dubbed, was one of the more controversial aspects of this investigation, of the investigation, and one that needed to be addressed in order to put the remainder of this discussion in context. A number of researchers have charged that the list was subject to constantly shifting parameters, which resulted in the number of victims whose cases appeared to be connected being excluded from the official victim count. Chet Detlinger, a former public safety commissioner and assistant to the chief of the Atlanta Police Department and co-author of the book The List, maintains that 63 pattern victims were arbitrarily left off the official tally, more than twice as many as actually did make the list. He also argues that 25 of those victims were killed after the arrest of Wayne Williams, the purported child murderer. The county's chief medical examiner at the time of the killings, Joseph Burton, has said much the same thing. By no means did the deaths of young black children and young black men stop with the arrest and conviction of Wayne Williams. Among the names that were arbitrarily omitted were a number of adult victims. Before March 1981, nearly two years after the killings had begun, adults were not deemed to fit the profile and were therefore excluded from the list. There is a considerable amount of uncertainty, therefore, as to how many victims there actually were, and when the killings began and ended. This discussion will be limited to the 29 officially recognized victims, though it is quite apparent that at least as many more were deliberately omitted from the list. As Public Safety Commissioner Dick Hand, which, holy shit, what kind of name is that, Dick Hand? As Public Safety Commissioner Dick Hand has acknowledged, the list that was created by the task force, in my own personal opinion, was an artificial list. According to the artificial but government-sanctioned list, the victims of the Atlanta child murders ranged in age from 7-year-old Latonya Wilson to the 28-year-old John Porter. Males and females were both represented, though a large majority were male. All of the victims significantly were African-American. 
There was no consistent pattern to the killings, as medical examiner Burton acknowledged. There was no signature that said this case and this case and this case are people that have been murdered or killed by the same individual. The first victim, 14-year-old Ed Smith, was shot. The rest were killed with weapons of opportunity. The most common cause of death was asphyxiation, with strangulation a close second. Two victims had their heads bludgeoned with blunt objects, two others were stabbed to death, two were drowned, and one victim broke his neck after being pushed or dropped from a bridge. One victim's body was never recovered, and several others were too badly decomposed by the time of their discovery to determine the cause of death. My words now. Apropos of nothing, we know of a CIA training document that was used for Operation PB Success, which was the agency's covert operation to overthrow the democratically elected government of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala in 1954. This document was released to the public in 1997 after a FOIA request. The document is entitled, A CIA Study of Assassinations. It discusses the role of assassinations in clandestine operations, as well as assassination techniques and methodologies. In particular, there is an extended discussion of killing using weapons of opportunity, specifically citing Ramon Mercader, who famously used a mountaineering ice pick to kill Leon Trotsky when every other method had failed. Now, I am not saying that the CIA was killing black kids in Atlanta, but... This document is representative of the types of tactics in vogue in covert operations, and these tactics might be used if, say, there was any type of covert operations present in the city of Atlanta. You following me? And this would be especially true if these children were being killed for reasons other than just exclusively the private compulsions of a solitary serial killer. As most but not all of these kids were not sexually assaulted, which, you know, again is a strange aspect of the case. Now let's talk about patterns. The investigators kept saying that there was no discernible pattern to the cases other than that they were all young black youths who met with violent ends. There were a lot of patterns, though and most of these patterns were deliberately ignored by police. Two of the victims were friends who disappeared four days apart, suggesting that they were either known to the killer or killers and or were not random. One boy was seen getting into a car with his former stepfather before his disappearance. Several children were seen getting into a blue car, and some of these children were seen after their disappearance alive on the streets supporting the theory that some were abducted but kept alive for a time, or, you know, something along those lines. Other children reported men in a car attempting to lure them away. Yet again, a blue car and multiple men. Now, this is wild. One of the boys even got the license plate of the blue car. The police did not follow up on this lead. This is a child getting the license plate of a car with men attempting to lure children into the car. Police did nothing. Another boy got a mysterious phone call, which makes me think of, like, the Jack Sarfati stuff, except, like, worse. 
and that boy got a mysterious phone call and then left his house only to disappear and wind up dead. Then, the youngest victim, LaTanya Wilson, was abducted in an improbable way, kind of resembling the Charles Lindbergh baby abduction. Here's the story so you can judge for yourself. In an apartment in West Atlanta, a family had a window replaced, and they had a maintenance man come and replace the window just a day before. A neighbor witnessed a black man, I note because that's consistent with the neighborhood, so a neighbor witnessed a a man remove a window pane from the second floor apartment of the Wilson family and enter the apartment. According to the neighbor, the intruder carried the unbroken window pane to a nearby dumpster. That unbroken window pane was found in a dumpster by police, you know, substantiating the, uh, the witness's story, right? And the intruder went back to the apartment, entered the window. The neighbor couldn't see from this point, but as the story would have to go, the intruder would have had to step onto a bed where three children were sleeping. The intruder then took LaTanya Wilson, put the child over his shoulder, and then would have had to walk past the parents' bedroom and then, you know, left out the back door because the parents found the back door open. Outside, the neighbor, the witness, saw the intruder stopping in the parking lot to speak with another black male, all the while holding the limp figure of LaTanya Wilson under his right arm. The kidnapping makes no sense. That's not how most kidnappings go, right? That would definitely be an atypical kidnapping if it happened the way the neighbor saw. Though, I think that without, unless there's evidence not to believe the neighbor, you know, there's reason to believe that it happened. It's just bizarre, right? But... Given the improbable nature of the kidnapping, the police instead focused their investigation on a family friend and ex-husband as possible suspects. The community strongly disagreed. Many of the mothers from the Committee to Stop Children's Murders, that was the group of mothers that caught the intervention from the feds, right? Many of these mothers were focused on this maintenance man that replaced the window as well as at least one police investigator who, you know, found that story credible. Also, for what it's worth, the abduction occurred on June 22nd, the summer solstice, not the first nor the last possibly occult element to the Atlanta child murders. The poor girl's body was found four months later, and the cause of death could not be determined. The next victim was a 10-year-old boy who was found under a bridge with a broken neck, and there's dispute as to whether he fell or was strangled and thrown off the bridge. Police, however, ruled it as accidental, at least initially, saying he fell. Now, the police thought it was strange that the boy was allowed to play outside. They found that fact irresponsible and or suspicious, so they arrested this boy's mother. After they released her, because they couldn't prove that, like, she strangled her own child, they tailed her for months. So you see that with many of these cases, it's either indifference and no investigation, or they, like, were literally trying to antagonize the mothers. 
they were carrying out antagonizing wrong-headed investigations. It's just bizarre. So in mid-July of 1980, the aforementioned group, the Committee to Stop Children's Murders, was formed by the parents of these victims. They successfully pressured Atlanta PD to open an investigation. Then, a curious thing happened. I thought about inserting an Adam Curtis clip, but, you know, I'm not trying to be joking in the context of such a bleak story. The curious thing was that the one of the mothers of a boy who was still missing got a call. The call said, I've got Earl, the missing boy. Don't call the police. Shortly thereafter, she got a second call. I've got Earl. He's in Alabama. It will cost you $200 to get him back. I will call back on Friday. As Dave McGowan said, there is no indication that Earl was in fact taken to Alabama. There is also no evidence that anyone is actually stupid enough to kidnap a child and transport him out of the state for purposes of raising a couple hundred dollars in ransom money. Those bizarre phone calls served a very important purpose, however. They immediately made the case a federal matter. Transporting a child across state lines for purposes of kidnapping and ransom, right? That, that makes it a, uh, a federal case, thereby bringing the feds in, which is what these black mothers needed. So Dave McGowan believes that the mothers, or someone associated with them, staged the call to bring in the feds. I happen to agree with them, although I don't think that it's unreasonable or, you know, wrong for them to have done this. When you realize, when you understand the role that the federal government has played, for better or worse, in protecting black people. Yes, the federal government was inconsistent in doing this, but they nonetheless did protect black people in certain times and places from local abuses dating back to the Civil War, and of course also in civil right, in the Civil Rights era. So, the Atlanta child murders, sadly, was the first time the FBI rolled out their profilers. Agent Douglas, like we've talked about. One thing that Agent Douglas stressed was that the killer would be a black serial killer responsible for the murders. Which, on the one hand, like, there was some evidence to suggest that seeing multiple black men either trying to lure children or, you know, the intruder in the LaTanya Wilson case and just the fact that, like, white people operating in these neighborhoods killing kids would be more conspicuous, right? Like, it's not entirely unreasonable to say it was a black serial killer, but also it was motivated by trying to calm people down, right? But... Agent Douglas leaves out a very interesting historical fact. Vice President Bush was sent to Atlanta to coordinate local and federal investigations and to make sure the investigation stayed on track. Keep that in mind. Make sure the investigation stayed on track. Make sure the investigation stayed on track. Agent Douglas doesn't mention that. Even though he talked about how much pressure they were under, you'd think it would come up, right? If you were to read Mindhunter, which has a long chapter on Agent Douglas's supposed successes and failures in Atlanta, 
there is no mention of Vice President Bush coming to town, when in reality he probably would have met, Agent Douglas probably would have met Vice President Bush, even if briefly, as he was a prominent member of the FBI's investigation. Even if he was just in the same room, right? The Vice President coming to town is not depicted in Mindhunter Season 2, the TV show even though it would have been a classic way to get the point across about the bureaucratic pressure they were under, which the Mindhunter TV show loves to dwell on the bureaucracy and the bureaucratic pressure. Atlanta was heating up, by the way. Citizens, mostly black, started organizing bat patrols, which is people walking around with baseball bats, you know, to protect their kids or whatever. The police discouraged bat patrols. But alongside black search teams looking for victims and bodies, there were unidentified white volunteers wearing flak jackets, rifles, walkie-talkies, and other paramilitary gear. Nobody has ever been able to explain who these men were or what they were doing. And, mind you, this is quite early for the militia movement. More on this later, too. Now... When enough kids go missing, or murdered, things get stirred up. And when you stir up the waters like this, sometimes you uncover some very dark shit. One of the missing children, Earl Terrell, went missing after leaving a public swimming pool right next to a house that was found to be the center of a child pornography ring. The police found literally thousands of images of child born from this home. The owner, John David Wilcoxon, was convicted for child born charges, but he was never considered a suspect by the police, even though, even though witnesses placed the missing boy at the house on several occasions. Now, we're all amateurs here, we don't have the profound level of training of local police, but, I mean, would you say that that sounds like a strong lead? Like, would it be suspicious to you if the literal child porn ring and the recurring pedophile connections never played a prominent role in the investigation of the Atlanta child murders? Kind of haunts me the end quote that I read from Agent Douglas in Mindhunter. We have an idea who did some of the others. It isn't a single offender, and the truth isn't pleasant. So far, though, there's been neither the evidence nor the public will to seek indictments. We, so he's literally saying, we know who killed some of the other children. There's not the public will or evidence to get indictments. Like, do you think it was maybe some of the child porn rings? Some of these pedophiles? Ah, uh, gee, I don't know. So the task force assembled the infamous list of victims, which was infamous for several reasons. Creating a victim list and excluding victims implies several assumptions, like that there's one killer being sought, which is an open question as we'll see. There was something unusual going on in Atlanta which did not fit any patterns. So excluding victims was like ontologically just like defining what the authorities were looking for. When what was killing all these black children and young people might not have been just one thing. 
Further, the list attempted to raise the average age of victims by excluding most of the children, and including adults towards the end. More on that to come. Then, if you could believe this, there was an explosion at a daycare in a black neighborhood which killed four more children. Investigators ruled it to be accidental, and these children are therefore not included in the Atlanta child murders. Supposedly, the explosion was the result of a boiler malfunction, though many in the community were unconvinced. Let's not forget the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Alabama in 1963, which also killed four black children, which was well within the living memory of most of the adults living at the time. The bombing of that Baptist church was carried out by the Klan, but the Klansmen had varying levels of connection to the FBI as informants, right? And the investigation's files of the Baptist church bombing, those files were sealed by J. Edgar Hoover for reasons that you can surmise yourself. Then, in the Atlanta child murders, friends of earlier victims started to go missing. Now, as anyone could guess, that is a very, that's very atypical of most missing persons and murder cases. And while it could theoretically be random, this happened several times with several connections per kid, all of which is indicative of a pattern, especially the sheer number of connections in this particular investigation. So, another victim, Luby Gator, a 14-year-old boy disappeared next. Like the prior victim, Earl Terrell, there was a connection between Geeter and the child pornographer Wilcoxon, a connection that was not pursued by APD. Luby Geeter was asphyxiated. Three weeks after Luby Geeter disappeared, his friend Terry Pugh disappeared also. Pugh was strangled to death. Police got fingerprints from the crime scene. The fingerprints were not Wayne Williams's and neither the prosecution nor the defense would bring this up at Williams' trial. Next, several more children disappeared and or were killed. Patrick Baltazar, age 12, expressed fear for his life to his friends and family. Then he disappeared. He was later found strangled. Next, Curtis Walker, age 13, was found asphyxiated. Curtis's uncle would be found murdered as well, though he was not included on the list. Next, Joseph Bell, age 15, and who knew several of the victims on the list would be found asphyxiated. With several of these boys, by the way, friends or family often reported receiving a desperate phone call. Sometimes they didn't know who it was until after the disappearance, you know, was discovered. The implication being, either the kids were running and then caught, or called from wherever they were, or escaped, called, and then were caught again, you know, something. And all of this is indicative of a hypothesis that, you know, we'll get to. Next, Timothy Hill, age 13, disappeared. Timothy Hill knew four prior victims, and Hill was known to visit the home of a known pedophile named Thomas Terrell. Two witnesses place Hill at Terrell's house around the time of his disappearance. Now get this, Terrell was investigated by the police. He admitted that he knew the boy and engaged in sexual acts with him. Somehow, though, the police did not arrest Terrell or consider him a suspect. 
Now, would you consider this normal investigative procedure? Then the first adults started to make the list, four in a row. Larry Rogers, age 20, strangled. Eddie Duncan, age 20, strangled. Michael McIntosh, age 23, asphyxiated. Jimmy Ray Payne, age 21, asphyxiated. John Porter, age 28, stabbed. William Barrett, age 17, strangled. Nathaniel Carter, age 27, asphyxiated. Here's the curious thing. McIntosh was known to visit Thomas Terrell's house, the aforementioned pedophile. And William Barrett was connected to a white pedophile who was connected to Luby Geeter. Barrett had also reported to the police that he was receiving death threats from someone he described as a hitman. Now, the guy who doesn't fit the list, John Porter, who was stabbed, was, in the eyes of Dave McGowan and others, put on the list in order to make a fiber connection in the Wayne Williams case. More on the fiber thing later. The final victim, Nathaniel Carter, was a drug dealer and male prostitute. It was the discovery of his body in the river that was the first thing to link Wayne Williams to any of these crimes. It was said to be Nathaniel Cater's body that Wayne Williams threw into the river, though some investigators doubt that Wayne Williams was on the bridge that night. To that end, the medical examiner could not figure out Nathaniel Cater's time of death. But later they accommodated police by making the bridge story fit, even though four witnesses contradicted this evidence and placed Cater's time of death, you know, moving it, therefore. These witnesses never made it to trial either. Here's a quote from the mayor of Atlanta, Bill Campbell. I happen to believe that the number of child prostitutes are far greater than we can imagine. I don't have a doubt in my mind that we that were we to adequately police this problem, we would find it is far more pervasive than any of us have imagined. Again, that was the Atlanta Mayor Bill Campbell commenting on the prevalence of child exploitation in his city, NPR News Morning Edition, May 9th, 2001. So not the period of the child murders, but nonetheless talking about Atlanta's child prostitution problem. Several of the children who went missing went missing around known gay hangouts in Atlanta. Now, we've already had the discussion about the distinction between gay people and pedophiles several times, so I'll skip it. But needless to say that that angle was consistently squashed in the investigation, and you can make assumptions as to why Chet Detlinger of the book The List, you know, lists off a few both out of consideration for the family, to not speak ill of the dead as they perceive it, the growing power of the gay vote in Atlanta, a cover-up protecting any pedophiles or murderers. There's, you know, several possible reasons, maybe several at once, right? But Dave McGowan says, none of the pedophiles connected to the case were ever seriously considered as suspects and certainly none were ever charged with any of the murders. There is little doubt that many of the victims were involved in a large and well-protected child prostitution and child pornography ring. Unanswered, though, are the questions of why and by whom they were killed. Now, this episode is tough, both for the topic. It's also tough because it ran long, 
and because we're straddling two topics here. But let's draw some conclusions. For one thing, I'm a big believer in wearing your influences on your sleeve and being free and loose and giving credit to people who have inspired you or who laid the groundwork for you or who laid the groundwork for the work you're doing now. I try to do that with Program to Chill, and I never want to feel like I own these topics or anything. And with a few exceptions, I'm usually drawing from other people's work anyway, right? So it's like I don't own them even if I wanted to act that way. In fact, I think it can be deceptive if you act like you invented a topic or a field of, or a field of study. And I'm not referring to people who are doing it first, who sometimes can actually claim that, but incorrectly acting like you invented something can be indicative of like a deceptive nature or like the sense of ownership that you own it. Sometimes it's justified, but more often than not, it isn't. And so it is with Agent Douglas, who didn't invent trying to look at serial killers scientifically, but he pretends like he did. Dr. Lundy was one of these predecessors who was already doing what the FBI was in the process of rebranding. And it was literally rebranding, as people pretend that the serial killer concept was invented by the FBI, when there was already the term serial murderer. And why did we switch from serial murderer to serial killer? It was a rebranding exercise. And, you know, there were prior terms for the same concept. Profiling is itself just a rebrand of criminal psychiatry, which is itself a rebrand of alienism. And so it goes. Dr. Lundy had a very spooky background suggesting connections to various government programs, and when he was and he was the go-to guy for when prosecutors and above wanted certain trials to be controlled. When it comes to Patty Hearst, Dan White, Jonestown, you don't go out and get loose cannons. You get the guy who's already in the know who's going to say what you want. And that was Dr. Lundy, who Agent Douglas never mentions. Also, by now it should be obvious that Agent Douglas tends to leave out information which some people would call critically important. Right? I think it's very important to note what does or does not get disclosed up front, and then what only gets disclosed upon pressure, and then what people will never disclose under any circumstances. Remember, it's not just the facts on their own, but how people react to the facts coming out that can tell you even more. And this principle is good to apply elsewhere, like perhaps to certain dirtbag podcasters. Keep in mind not only the facts of their lives, but when they choose to reveal them, right? Anyway, regarding the Atlanta child murders, I'm going to refrain from drawing too many conclusions until we cover Wayne Williams next week. But suffice it to say that some very strange things were happening that are not explained by Wayne Williams. We did see that there was a pedophile underground in Atlanta, and unfortunately, many of the victims had some connection to it. Very little of this got into the press at the time, and Agent Douglas ignores it altogether. We're about to get into exactly how much he covers up in the next episode, where things get very dark indeed. As you might guess, as sources today, I used Mindhunter, Program to Kill, 
as well as various newspaper articles on Dr. Lundy. And finally, the rare book on the Atlanta child murderers, The List by Chet Detlinger, one of the investigators on the case. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Just let people know about the show. If you liked this episode, just say, wow, I liked the episode. I will see you next episode, and God bless. The Commission, Uncle Paulie, P. Diddy, Cesar Leo, De Janeiro, Charlie Baltimore, Iceberg Slim, The Most Shady, Frankie Baby. We here. Do you know what beef is? Do you know what beef is? Uh-uh. Ask yourself. Uh-uh. Do you know uh-huh. what beef is? Uh-huh. Come on. <laughs> Check out this bizarre uh, rapper style used by me. The B.I.G. I put my key, you put your key in. Money will be seen. We'll reach the fucking ceiling. Check it. Check it. My calico been cop. Uh-huh. This rap, Alfred Hitchcock. Drop top notch. Player hating gon' stop. Uh, this instant. Rappers too persistent. Quick to spit. Biggie name on shit. Make my name taste like ass when you speak it. See me in the streets, your jewelry, you can keep it. That be our little secret, see me. Uh, be that is, I that is, G whiz. Motherfuckers still in uh-huh. my bed. I hope they know my nigga gotta fucking kidnap kids. Uh, Fuck them in they ass, throw them over the bridge. I hope they know my nigga gotta fucking kidnap kids. Uh, Fuck them in they ass, throw them over the bridge. I hope they know my nigga gotta fucking kidnap kids. Uh, Fuck them in they ass, throw them over the bridge. That's how it is, my shit is laid out what? Fuck that beef shit, that shit is played out Y'all got the goal, all I make is one phone call All y'all disappear by tomorrow All your guns is borrowed, I don't feel sorrow Actually, your man passed the gap to me Now check this, what's beef? Beef is when you need two cats to go to sleep Beef is when your moms ain't safe up in the streets Beef is when I see you Guaranteed to be in ICU one more time, what's beef? Beef is when you make your enemies start your jeep. Beef is when you roll no less than 30 deep. Beef is when I see you. Guaranteed to be your ICU. Check it. I done smoked with the best uh-huh. of them. Shot at the rest uh-huh. of them. Was about a hundred or more. Maybe less of them. Got my rocks off. That nigga from the brook just be wildin' on you, just be stylin' on so you, and crazy. I tried to warn you, but your eyes fucked up. Now I cleared them shits with hits, you on the fucking bench. Pardon my friends, but uh, sometimes I get kinda peeved at these weak MCs with these supreme ball of life. Lyrics, I call them like I see them, G. Y'all niggas sound like me. Y'all was grimy in the early 90s, far behind me. It ain't hard to find me, number one with the booyaka. Give me the Remy and the Chronic, ain't no telling what I do to y'all. It's obvious the game's new to y'all. Take them ends you make and spend them on the tutor, huh? One shot, I'm through with y'all. Beef is when you need two gas to go to sleep. Beef is when your moms ain't safe up in the streets. Beef is when I see you. Guaranteed to be in ICU. One more time, what's beef? Beef is when you make your enemies start your cheek. Beef is when you roll no less than 30 deep. Beef is when I see you. Guaranteed to be in ICU. There be nothing but smooth sailing. When I spit shots, now your crew's bailing. All I got is heat and tough talk for you. Tie you up, cut your balls off just for you. 
man, listen, straight torture. Look what that slick shit bought ya. A first class ticket to Lucifer. Real name Christopher. Watch me set it off like Vivica. Here lies your demise. Close your eyes, think good thoughts. Die while your skin start to glisten. Pale blue, hands get cold, your soul's risen. It's bad cause I just begun. We'll make this shit real bad, I was having fun. <laughs> What's beef? What's beef? beef is when you need two cats to go to sleep. Don't sleep. Beef is when your moms ain't safe up in the streets. Beef is when I see you. Guaranteed to be your I see you. One more time. What's beef? What's beef? beef is when you make your enemies start your cheese. Beef is when you roll no less than 30 deep. Beef is when I see you. Guaranteed to be your I see you. And I'm through. And I'm through. Uh, uh, Hitman, baby. Hitman, baby. On and on.